Podcastle episode number 446 for December 13, 2016. The Rock and Water by Thorea Dyer, rated PG. Salam, good people. This is Khalida Muhammad Ali, assistant editor over here at Podcastle, and your host for this episode. Reading this story made me remember what a magical time childhood is. Children are always so ready to grow up, to shed the innocence and seeming unimportance of childhood. We adults know better though, don't we? Once we become adults and take on the responsibility that goes with it, some of us, myself included, long for the days of our youth. Not just because of the lack of responsibility, but mostly because of the sheer strength of will and imagination and fearlessness children possess. These are treasures that once lost are nearly impossible to recapture. Podcastle is very proud to present The Rock and Water by Thorea Dyer, previously published in People of Color Destroy Fantasy. Today's story was written by Thorea Dyer. She is an Orealis and Dittmar award-winning Sydney-based science fiction writer and lapsed veterinarian. Her work has appeared in Clark's World, Apex, Cosmos, Analog, and famous U.S. and Australian anthologies. Four of her original stories are collected in Asymmetry, available from 12th Planet Press. Her first novel, Crossroads of Canopy, a big fat fantasy set in a magical rainforest, is forthcoming from Tor in January 2017. Congrats, Thorea. You can listen to a short story set in the same world, The Chimney Borer and the Tanner, at podcastle.org, and or follow her at Thorea Dyer on Twitter. That's T-H-O-R-A-I-Y-A-D-Y-E-R on Twitter, and her website is thoreadyer.com. This week's story has two narrators, Natalie Saren and Lulu Zal. Natalie is a Philadelphia-based singer-songwriter, teaching artist, and blogger originally from Port-au-Prince, Haiti. She likes to think of herself as the class clown all grown up. Natalie has a deep passion for Haiti and the arts especially wherever these two topics converge. She is the editor for Woy Magazine, W-O-Y-M-A-G-A-Z-I-N-E.com. Lulu Zal is a school teacher specializing in English and medieval history, but is also a lifelong fan of fantasy, romance, and historical fiction. She is also fluent in both English and Arabic. Besides trying to pen her own stories, she is delighted to have multiple narration credits at Starship Sofa and now Podcastle. When she was 18, she managed to track down and interview Mark Hamill for her school magazine. She lives with her husband and two children, one of whom is a writer and editor of science fiction in sunburnt Sydney, Australia, where she's always on the hunt for antique books to add to her growing collection. The Rock in the Water by Thorea Dyer Throw them in the water where nobody will see, the head cook told Evelyn right before sunrise. 
But there are already so many people washing their clothes in the river that Evelyn holds a string bag of stinking empty shells behind a banana tree and cries in dismay without making a sound. She's seven years old, too big to be crying like a baby. Evelyn scrubs at the tears with the back of her lumpy smelling hand and strains to see a place without people. Too many fishing boats with tires hung over the sides. Too many men pulling their nets up onto the silver silt. Too many trucks in the pebbly shallows filling containers with dirty river water while children who still have parents swim and laugh. Evelyn wants to shriek at them not to drink the water, not to swim in it. Don't they know anything? Her parents drank the dirty water and died. Now Evelyn belongs to Monsieur Maurice. She works in his big house, sleeps on the floor, and answers to a new name. The head cook is supposed to send her to school, but instead sends her to hide the lumpy shells. Monsieur Maurice ships things to Miami. Bad powder to make people crazy. Trays labeled frozen fish that are really frozen lumpy. He swaps them for things from Miami that nobody else in Paul de Pé can get. Radios and bicycles, parts for cars. They're stolen, but Monsieur Maurice says he's like Robin Hood, stealing from the rich. They don't even notice what's missing, he laughs. The rock in the water doesn't know the pain of the rock in the sun. Everyone doesn't agree with him, especially not the soldiers whose boats and seaplanes also take things to Miami. If anyone sees Yveline with the shells, Monsieur Maurice will be in trouble. Yveline will be beaten again. The string bag's almost as tall as she is. Hugging it, she drags it through the long grass retreating from the river mouth, away from the golden dawn. There's still time to take the shells to the other side of the point, to dump them into the sea. Sunlight doesn't yet touch the tiny cove which faces northwest, its small sandy curve smiling at the Atlantic. Along the beach, bent palm trees whisper like rag-clad witches. Evelyn creeps by them. She avoids crumbling colonial fortifications covered in vines, squatters' tents, and blue tarpaulins. Too many people everywhere. Evelyn's arms are covered in cuts from the sharp pink mouth-edged and knobby gray outsides of the shells. When she reaches the beach and sees a tall, skinny woman constructing something in the sand, a small lumpy shape against the big green lumpy shape of Ile de la Tortue across the water, she starts to cry again. The woman will see her if she leaves the shadows. She'll have to bury the string bag in the sand. The wind might unbury it, but by then she'll be gone. Her fingers make tiny, busy scoops, but no matter how she digs and digs, the hole doesn't get big enough to hold the bag. She needs a grown-up to help her, and there's nobody besides the tall woman. Maybe the woman isn't a spy for Monsieur Moise's enemies. Maybe it could be safe to ask her. When she looks up from her muddy hole, she sees what the woman was making on the beach. A tent made from black plastic. There are things hung from the poles, bones and feathers and colorful beads. Evelyn can't see the woman anymore. She must be inside. Evelyn wipes her tears away again. Before she can run across the open space to the tent, another moving shape freezes her in her tracks. A bald man in a purple shirt walks out of the sunrise towards the tent. He lifts the flap, goes inside. But for the wind, the beach is still. But for the wind, the beach is quiet. She should throw the shells in the water right now. Evelyn runs across the sand, dragging the lumpy bag behind her, but she doesn't go to the edge of the sea. Her skin prickles and she stops beside the tent instead. She crouches by a tiny hole in the plastic, 
presses her eye against the hole. Sod can't find the mama cat anywhere. It's crawled into some warm space to have its kittens. She's sure of it. And last time, the bloody placentas splodged all over her neatly folded school uniform, ruining it. She can't afford to be late today. Sod is the third speaker in the debate against Ain Tarma in the girls' preparatory school final. The topic is, should women be allowed to sing in public, or some inanity, when it should be something serious? Sod, you are too serious, Sod's mother always tells her. The broken window in the kitchen has come open again. Saad forces it shut. There are tiny holes in the lace curtains from a sandstorm that engulfed the city in the summer, invaded the house via the broken window, and set Saad sweeping up dust for days. Sweeping and thinking. Each grain of sand is nothing. Together, though... They scour paint from cars, erase political slogans on billboards and remind dictators in private helicopters that not everything is under their control. Meowlings come from the pantry cupboard. Saad opens the door to find the mama cat kittening on a 50 kilo bag of rice. Her long tawny fur is matted at the back end. Saad brought her home from the garbage tip by the sea because she looked like a little lion. There you are she whispers. There you are. A man's voice hollers somewhere in the house, in a house where no men live. Saad hesitates. She could hide in the pantry. She should hide. Her mother has woken her several times in the middle of the night, a shivering moonlit shape, just to tell her that when they come, if they come, Saad must not be brave. But Saad has never really believed that anyone would come. Her mother is wealthy, educated, respected. God is watching after all. She leaps to her feet and strolls out into the lounge room. What's going on? She shouts at a man in military uniform who has kicked over the coffee table for no reason. It's Jalal. She went to school with him. He always had his arms out pretending to be an airplane, always did enjoy knocking things down. We're here to get her. Jalal brags, jerking his head sideways at Saad's mother, who stands in the doorway with one hand in the yogurt bowl, her astonished mouth still full of chewed flatbread and cucumber. She's been talking to some Western journalists. Look! He holds up a grainy photo of a woman in a white scarf. It's obviously not Saad's mother. It's not her! It's not me, Saad's mother agrees. Of course it is her, Jalal says. You will come with us now, Um Saad. He sneers at the title. Mother of Saad. Women should be called by the name of their oldest sons. But all of Um Saad's seven sons miscarried before she brought a daughter to term. Something was wrong with all of Saad's ghostly brothers so that God did not allow them to be born. Leave her alone, it's not her, Saad screams. But two more men come to help Jalal put Saad's mother in the back of an oil-smelling, sand-coloured truck. Have a nice day at school, Jalal says to her shocked, furious face. Study hard. We'll come back for you. There's no room in the prison right now, but somebody is sure to die soon. Traitors cannot be allowed to go free. Evelyn's peeping eye adjusts to the darkness inside the tent. 
There's light from a candle in a lumby shell. Interesting things unpacked onto little tables. A wooden pipe, a straw hat, a jeweled hand mirror. The woman who put up the tent sits on a folding stool, while the man in the purple shirt sits across from her on a plantain crate. If the cholera has come beneath your roof, the woman is saying, would you not rather seek a spirit of healing? Too late for that, the man replies, clutching his bald head, his elbows on his knees. I wish for revenge. Those blue helmets are the ones who brought it, but none of them have died. They are talking about the bad water sickness that killed Evelyn's parents. The cholera, the woman called it. Evelyn shifts her feet in the sand. The woman clucks her tongue. Creole is spoken, is Creole understood. Forgive me, Mambo Asogwe. I meant that only a few of the soldiers have died. Thousands of us have died, are still dying every day. Who can give me justice if not Marinette of the dry feet? She freed us from bondage long ago. She will know how to drive them away. She may, the woman agrees reluctantly. I will summon her so that you can ask her. Evelyn draws back from the hole in the tent, her heart pounding. Now she knows it was a stirring of spirit that drew her irresistibly to the side of the tent. The woman is a priestess preparing to call one of the lois. Marinette will ride the woman like a horse, answer questions through her lips. Evelyn is terrified of the bad things that might follow the lois from the other world to this one. Dead things. Hungry things. She must get away from the tent. It doesn't matter anymore if she's beaten. It doesn't matter what Monsieur Maurice says or does to her. Then she sees something that raises her terror to new heights. The local gangs have not been slow to notice the appearance of the black tent. On the far side of the place where Evelyn cringes between the tent and the bag of lumby are a handful of gangly boys with guns and machetes. They move like they have taken some of Monsieur Maurice's bad powder to make them brave. Come on out, witch, one of them shouts. This is our turf. Pay if you want to stay, shouts another one, rattling his weapon in a loose grip. The bald man comes out of the tent. Evelyn can't see him, but she hears the swish of the plastic flap and the fury in his deep voice. You little fools, don't you know what these feathers and things mean? You have interrupted. The sound of the gun firing many times in a small number of seconds makes Evelyn shrink down in the smallest ball her shaking body can make. She wishes to be much, much smaller. She wishes to be small enough to crawl inside one of the lumpy shells to hide there until it is safe. There is silence. You interrupted him, all right, one of the boys guffaws, and the others laugh, but they don't sound like they're having a good time. They sound like a rooster sounds right before its neck is wrung. Solid doesn't go to school. She takes the money from the house safe and finds a sand-colored truck of her own. 20000 for United States, the smuggler says matter-of-factly. 15,000 for number one good European country. 12,000 for bad European country. Saad hides her dread. She's heard of women handing over their money and then being sold into slavery or prostitution. Picking up a bootleg handbag that the smuggler is pretending to sell at his market stall, she turns it over, 
in her hands and replaces it without really seeing it, the risks are unavoidable. Sa'ad is a lion. She's a daughter of lions. She imagines the ghosts of her seven brothers standing behind her. Where can I go, she demands, for three thousand. The smuggler rolls the cigarette from one side of his mouth to the other. He gobbles down some spit and smoke. Sword stares him in the eye. A boat, he says at last. No papers. A boat from Red Sea Port. You will work when you get to Malaysia to pay for the next part of the journey. To Australia. I won't do the work that you're talking about, Saad hisses. Not that kind of work, the smuggler shrugs. Cleaning work, cooking work, work that will break your back, work that will make your black hair grey. My hair will not turn grey, Saad says. She's 14 years old. Since she was a precocious child watching Judge Judy on pirated satellite TV, she has wanted to sit behind a bench and bang a polished wooden gavel. She will do it. She will bang it down hard and Jamal will go to prison crying and peeing in his pants. You are guilty, she will say from her high seat. You should never have set foot in my house. I am a daughter of lions. On the beach, Evelyn stays so tightly curled she doesn't see the tent change. Instead, she feels it shudder. The smoothness on her bare shoulder turns to hairy, rubbing roughness. Evelyn shrinks back from it. Her eyes fly open. The tent is turned to a ring of black pigs pressed up together with a pyramid of featherless black roosters perched on their bristly backs. All at once, the red-eyed, red-tusked pigs squeal. All at once, the black roosters open red beaks and crow towards the sunrise. In the deafening confusion, the guns fire again. Bladed weapons swing and boys swear and scream. Evelyn screams too, with all the breath that is inside her. Is this how you show respect? The grating voice is a woman's, but it doesn't match the gentle voice of the mumbo Asogwe who reluctantly agreed to call Marinette of the dry feet. The boys run across the beach. Pigs and roosters pursue them. When all the tent walls turn to animals are gone, the tall woman stays standing between empty tent poles. The bald man with the purple shirt lies dead at her feet, along with a few bleeding roosters. The priestess turns her gaze to Evelyn, takes two steps towards her. Evelyn pushes her fists into her mouth to stop from screaming again. Beneath the hem of the woman's dark skirt, she sees two skeleton feet. The bare bones sink a little into the sand. You wish to escape this place, child. You wish to be safe. Children have begged for such things before. I covered this land in blood to help those children. Evelyn moves her fists, mouths something so quiet she isn't sure the Lua can hear. I just, I just, I just wanted to put the shells in the sea. Take them into the sea then, Marinette commands in her voice like death. Take them, child, and be safe until you have had all you can stomach of safety. Evelyn takes hold of the bag with arms like jelly. It's immovable at first, impossible. Seconds later, it lightens. The waves beckon. The squeals of pigs and boys grow distant. She lifts it and dares to turn her back on one of the lois. Her back. 
The shells are slung over her back, but she doesn't remember doing that. They're lighter and lighter the closer she gets to the water. They're part of her. Her clothes turn to sand and fall away. In the mirror of the surface, she sees herself, a naked girl with a giant lumpy shell on her back. When she walks into the waves, they are warm. They do not drown her. She walks and keeps on walking, forgetting her terror in the wonder of it. Her feet stir up the sand on the bottom of the crystal clear sea. She walks around other dumped debris, shells and car bodies and crab pots and human bones. Mr. Molise can never find me, she thinks. Nobody owns me anymore. Evelyn passes the day walking among wild lumbi. She skips like a child for the first time in hilarious slow motion through beautiful seagrass beds. As the sun begins to set, turning the surface to stained glass church windows, she realizes she will never feel hungry or thirsty again. She is free to walk or swim wherever her magical lumpy body can take her and rest curled inside the pink part of the pearly perfect shell whenever she feels like sleeping and dreaming. Throw them in the water where nobody will see, the head cook told her. Marinette of the dry feet has thrown Evelyn into the water. Only the stingrays are here to see her joy at being free. Sawed scrubs at the grime-encrusted floor of the commercial kitchen. Pass me the other cloth, she says to herself. She has no one else to speak Arabic to and none of the other cleaners speak French. Her Indonesian is improving, her English uh, half forgotten. On calloused knees, she crawls to the bucket and wrings out the ineffectual current cloth, a scrap of old, stolen clothing that was soon too worn for her to keep wearing. It's been four years after all. Saad hasn't grown much. Her mother always was a small woman, or perhaps it's because she hasn't eaten much. She'd do anything for a bowl of Um Saad's full madamas, smothered in lemon and oil. Sometimes she thinks she made a mistake, that she wasn't really in danger, but it's her mind playing tricks on her. Are you still alive? she asks aloud. As the question leaves her lips, she thinks of the butterfly effect she read about once, of ripples crossing the whole world. If her question can cross the whole world, to find the ears of a middle-aged woman in a prison more terrible than this workplace then maybe, if Sahod listens hard enough, there will come a reply. Or the tongueless sound of torture. Silence, maybe. Maybe it's not even her mother she's asking, maybe it's herself. Sahod remembers the kittens in the pantry cupboard that day, and some of them will be dead now. Some of them will be fine, bold cats that look like little lions. Saad uses the other, harsher cloth on a spatter of duck fat and green onions that's turned to black and yellow mould in the week since the army of refugee women last came to clean this kitchen. I am one of those bold ones. I will find her again. Evelyn swims up to the bottom of the massive oil tanker. She curls into her shell and sticks to it, snug as a barnacle. The poison paint to keep sea creatures away tastes strange, but doesn't harm her. Ships carry her over the deep parts of the ocean, the dark places where she's scared to go. She doesn't get bigger, and she doesn't grow older. 
Sometimes, though, she leaves her shell and walks naked up onto beaches blanketed by the quiet of the night. She breathes air, listens to birds, and counts stars. Sometimes she watches people, peeps at them past rocks or from behind bushes, listens to their conversations when they are in a language she can understand. The comparative warmth of the water tells her when she's in shallow seas again. She breaks off the bottom of the tanker and drifts down, poking her feet out of her shell, finding sea grasses a little different to the ones near her old home, but filled with fish of as many colors and dazzling patterns of light. Saad lies on her back in vomit-filled bilge water. She's wrapped in a heat-conserving space blanket, bought with extra weeks of work, but others, squeezed in like sardines beside her, their terror palpable in the dark, have boarded the worm-holed wooden fishing boat unprepared. Which way? A pregnant woman beside her raves. Which way should I turn to pray? God is everywhere, Saad tells her. Telling north from south, from east, from west, is a mad woman's errand. There is no chance of finding Mecca in the black ship hold. No chance of seeing or knowing anything at all. Only breathing as calmly as they can manage while the air grows sour. Hours later, the pregnant woman's hands creep over, trying to steal her blanket. I'm cold. Let go. It's mine. I'm cold. Saud's head jerks as the woman's hand find her eye sockets and push. She has no choice but to bite the hands until she tastes blood, crying angrily as she does it, the pounding in her ears drowning out whatever the woman is babbling. The hands withdraw. The pregnant woman is the weaker. Saad is the stronger. Hours later, the woman's laboured breathing stops. We're all going to die, the Iraqi on the other side of the dead woman whispers. There is a heart-stopping shudder and the sound of wood tearing. The bilge water, turned to a slurry by shed and corpses, is abruptly fresh and icy. The boat is leaking. Water is coming into the compartment. Saad breathes as calmly as she can manage. If only her mother had thought to keep more money in the house, she could have gone to the number one good European country. Evelyn wakes to a tapping on her shell. When she cautiously pokes her head out, there isn't much to see. It's still dark out and her eyes are still human. Then something taps again. She pulls her arms and shoulders out of the shell and sees the glowing gray shapes of babies. There are seven of them. Their eyes closed, umbilical cords tangled like seaweed. They drum on her shell with their tiny heels. Evelyn pulls back into her shell. Safe inside it, she considers the unnatural creatures that have come to call. She herself is an unnatural creature. She knows now that not all spirits are wicked. But what do seven unborn babies want from her? My time is up, she thinks miserably. Malinette needs my shell for somebody else. She has sent the babies to fetch me back. When she uncurls a second time, the babies take her hands in their smaller, softer, paler hands. They pull her along through water too black to see where she is headed, at a terrible breakneck speed much faster than even the biggest of the boats Evelyn has stuck to. She doesn't resist, only thinks sadly of her beautiful journey coming to an end. But the babies tug her upwards, guide her to a black confusion of struggling bodies and broken timber. 
put her hands around a shape wrapped in silver-like fish skin. Evelyn pulls the shape inside her shell. With both of them inside squashed together, the shell grows heavy, sinking rapidly to the seafloor. Evelyn feels another girl's face with her hands, an older girl, a young lady. Is this the one who will take her shell from her? Has somebody owned this lady, made her do bad? Are her parents only a shadow of a shadow like Evelyn's parents, or does she miss them? Will she be happy with stingrays for friends? The lady's chest spasms. She's trying to breathe. The shell is not being given to her, or else why does she still need to breathe? Evelyn pushes off the bottom as hard as she can, holding the lady's head out of the shell and upwards. They break through the surface. The lady sputters, wretches. As she heaves up the salt water, she makes movements with her legs and arms, but they aren't the movements of someone who knows how to swim. Evelyn twists, pokes, and pushes the lady until she's resting beneath the knobbly spines of the lubby shell. Then, like a tiny mobile island, she swims along the surface of the sea, looking for somewhere to set down her unexpected burden. The babies follow along behind her, no longer kicking. Content. Saad wakes as they strap her onto a stretcher. Wind and sea spray salt the faces of her rescuers. They wear reflective orange and yellow jackets, dark glasses and grizzled beards, but their hands are white. Their hands are white. I am not dead and their hands are white. While she lay half-drowned on the rocks, she dreamed of a giant conch spirit, a liquid-eyed girl slipping naked from a great grey and pink shell at sunrise, dragging Sahod by the leg onto a rock shelf while limpets lacerated Sahod's shoulders. The conch girl tucked the silver space blanket around her, asked something in almost French that Sahod balanced on the edge of understanding. White hands insert cannulas and change her hospital sheets. White faces ask brown faces to ask her kindly how she's feeling. I'm feeling close, Saad thinks. I can almost feel that gavel in my hands. Here I will finish my education. Here I will hone my mind into a weapon that can open prison doors. She smiles tentatively. Other white faces ask, through their own translators, for her papers. Saad's smile fades. When she cannot give them what they want, white hands bind her wrists with cable ties. They tell her she cannot stay on the island where the conch spirit has brought her. Once she recovers her strength and health, white hands push her and a hundred others into an Australian ship that is in no danger of sinking. The storm-coloured ship is crowded with uniformed women and men, and all of them have the papers Sorod does not. Papers to say they can stay. The powerful vessel cuts smoothly through deep water, with no nightmare rocking of waves, to a different island. It's an offshore kind of prison where, they promise her, nobody is tortured. She is only here to be processed, to wait. How long must I wait? She asks the tired doctor outside the medical tent. Nobody knows. Nobody is tortured. Nobody is told. Evelyn dwells on the young lady she rescued. I could do that again, she thinks. I could do it all the time. 
Without the babies to help her, she doesn't always find the broken boats in time. Sometimes there are only bodies with no life inside them, but sometimes she saves somebody, sometimes more than one person. She doesn't know what happens to them after she leaves them on the shore. Sometimes she wonders about that lady, the very first one she saved. As seasons pass, seas rise and more and more people need to move. More and more people drown. Many great cities are no longer fit for the living. And the boats leave and sometimes they float. And sometimes they break and sometimes they don't. Ten years pass before Sa'ad is allowed to leave the prison. Mostly it is because the island where the prison sits is being eaten by the sea and is no longer safe, but also because they have finally found her to be a true refugee. Not because of Jamal or Umm Sa'ad or a regime long fallen, but because the coastal city where she lived is now lost underwater. Sa'ad sits in a grey, featureless classroom on the mainland at a school for refugees, trying to remember her English. She has stared at dirt and listened to rain on tin roofing for so long she barely knows the sound of her own voice. Her mind feels dull. She knows her brain has lost its childhood elasticity, its ability to absorb like a sponge. Apple, the teacher says. Apple, repeats the enthusiastic seven-year-old Sudanese girl who sits beside Saud. She reminds Saud of a dream she had once. Some jumble of Lord of the Flies, Island of the Blue Dolphins and Death in Dark Waters. Apple, the teacher says to Saud. Apple, Saud says. She is 29 years old. Evelyn follows a feeling and finds the white-haired woman at last on a rocky shore. The woman cries softly in a nest of washed-up rubbish and filth. Tires and trolleys and truckloads of rubble pile up at the water's edge. Steel skeletons stick out of broken concrete and old shoes lie next to broken dolls and frayed blood-stained carpets. Evelyn has tested her boundaries and knows she cannot pass beyond the high tide line. The white-haired woman sits on a toppled telegraph pole, alone at dusk in a dangerous land with the sound of prayers on a smoking horizon. Aren't you afraid to be here by yourself? Evelyn ventures in French. The woman looks up at her. It is the older girl that Evelyn rescued a hundred seasons ago. Her face is wrinkled, but her angry eyes are the same. She doesn't react with fear or surprise. What is there to be afraid of now? My mother is dead. She has been dead all this time. Two pieces of paper I earned with the strength of my love for her. One to say I am a citizen of a country willing to protect me. One to say I know international law. I wore them like bulletproof armor front and back and I flew here to find her. Should I be frightened for myself now when I have nothing to lose? Evelyn wants to understand what the white-haired woman is saying, but she can't. Unless she casts off her shell forever, leaving safety behind, she cannot change. She cannot grow. Are you so sad, she asks, trying to grasp the other's sorrow, that you wish I hadn't saved you? 
The white-haired woman barks a laugh. No, she says, not so sad as that. What will you do now? Help others. Save others or try to. It won't be safe. I don't want to be safe. I want to fight. She tosses her white mane defiantly. Evelyn feels in awe of her. I can still punish people who think their wrongs have gone unnoticed. I can still make them pay. My mother died from drinking bad water, Evelyn says. I don't remember her. She remembers Malinette, though. Her fleshless feet below the hem of her dress. If Evelyn gives up her shell, she will grow old and die. Her feet that carry her in lazy leaps from clam to clam in blue topaz water will turn to fish-bitten bones. There's nothing to punish in that case, the white-haired woman says, but Evelyn isn't so sure. When the creator made the clams and the clear topaz water, he could have just left out the tiny creatures that cause cholera, couldn't he? Will you punish the people who put your mother in prison? They are dead too. There's nobody left here for me to punish. I could try to punish the people who imprisoned me, I suppose, but... Why punish people for a failure of imagination? They could not imagine that I was like them. They still do not imagine it. The rock in the water, Evelyn remembers Monsieur Molly saying, doesn't know the pain of the rock in the sun. I was so focused on those silly pieces of paper, the white-haired woman goes on, and they made me wait so long that I lost my chance to have my own family. I'll be your family, Evelyn says, surprising herself. Will you? Evelyn runs up the hill of garbage and flings herself into the white-haired woman's lap, wanting her for a mother, wanting to learn how to be fierce and brave as a lion. Yes. But the woman pushes her away, trying to hold her at arm's length. What can I be thinking? They will never let me bring a little black girl back with me. They will take your youth as they took mine. They will make you wait. No. Go back in the sea. Come with me, Mama Lion. Ride on my shell. I can take you where you want to go. The white-haired woman shakes her head. She traces Evelyn's cheek like she's tracing the path of tears. This old lion has no love for the sea, little one. Stay safe. And you be careful who you bring back from death. Make sure you only save the good ones. Throw the other ones back, won't you? Evelyn doesn't know what to say to that. Feels the pang of loss for a thing she has never had. She walks back into the water as the last light fades, finding her shell and curling into it. Then she strides into the underwater city where Mama Lion once lived finds the seven ghost babies sleeping in the arms of a skeleton in a prison cell. They beckon to her to come and meet their mother, but she passes them, sharks at her heels, feeling the need to keep moving, moving, moving through the stingray country without borders until she finds another ship broken at sea. And welcome back. 
I think that what I like most about this story is that it follows two different people, one a young girl and the other a young woman. Their backgrounds are different and yet they share many of the same motivations. Both were forced to find a way of life away from their original homes. Both have had to sacrifice. Both have been forced to change. In brief, despite their differences, they share the very deep commonality of humanity and displacement. I find this message to be so timely considering the recent political climate. So many groups of people that before existed in different circles are now finding a common bond in their fear and hope and bravery. Tragedy or the threat of tragedy has a humbling and unifying effect on some people. And this, in my opinion, is the most important benefit of challenge. What do you think? Speaking of which, Let's hear some episode feedback. Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode number 435, Bilingual or Mouth to Mouth by Lisa M. Bradley. This story seemed to bring a lot of pleasure to podcastlers. Devoted135 had this to say, I really enjoyed how intricately woven this one was. All of the little pieces really came together at the end. The relationships felt very real to me, especially the friendship between the two boys. I don't remember it having a romantic twist at the end. Maybe I missed something. Oh, the fantastic narration. Abragella said this, I think I've listened to this podcast at least three times. I live in South Texas. It's so nice to read a story set down here. I love the characters, especially Hara. She had the proper disdain for humans that I would expect from one of her kind. I plan on reading as much of the author as I can get a hold of. Now I'm going to go listen to it again. Alexa said, I love this one. The idea of magical super tasters was fascinating and some of the imagery was incredible. The phrase, her voice sounded like an Alka-Seltzer, was particularly lovely. Roberto Suarez's reading was also wonderful and really got me emotionally invested in the characters. I'm definitely going back over the archives to listen to the other stories he's narrated. And Jethro's belt had a very brief yet succinct request. More fun like this, please. We'll do our best, Jethro. Thank you, Devoted135, Abragella, Alexer, Jeff Roosevelt, and everyone else who stopped by to comment. Keep coming back to let us know what you think of our stories. I, for one, love hearing your varied, intelligent, and thoughtful comments about the stories we produce. For those of you who didn't leave a comment this time, I sure hope you'll jump into the fray on the next go-round by visiting the Escape Artists Forum at forum.escapeartists.net. And that's it for today. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, our forum moderators, Thalia and Asakat, our audio producer, Peter Wood, our associate editors, Aron Jiwa, Setsu Uzume, Christiana Formular, Troy Wiggins, Aidan Doyle, Crystal Claxton, Mike Dovey, and Raj Gopal. Our assistant editor, myself, your co-editors, Jen R. Albert and Graham Dunlop. Thank you for stopping by and sharing this story with us. We'll be back next week with another. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists, Inc.
It is released under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial Non-Derivatives 4.0 International License. Share it if you like, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, check out their website at shiva-in-exile.de. We rely on you to keep this floating castle above the clouds. If you're able, we'd love for you to help. You can make donations of any amount at the podcastle website in the support us section. If you're unable to do that, that's okay. But we would appreciate if you told your friends about us by tweeting or Facebooking or talking about us on your favorite social media platform, whatever that may be. In the meantime, this is Khalida Muhammad Ali signing out with a quote from Benjamin E. Mays. The tragedy of life is often not in our failure, but rather in our complacency, not in our doing too much, but rather in our doing too little, not in our living above our ability, but rather in our living below our capacities. Peace.